Good morning, Kingsway. If you can hear my voice and you're out in the foyer, come on into the auditorium. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Quinn. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, church, and to welcome you to Kingsway. We gather as the people of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus saved us from our sin. We declare our faith in that. We gather as his people today. If you're new and are interested in connecting with Kingsway more, um, we would love to get to know you. And the best way to do that is visiting kingsway.cc and fill out a short connect with us form that's there on our homepage. Um, But I will tell you, that's not going to be your first time to connect with us as a church. If you walk in here and you're new, somebody's going to spot you. Somebody's going to come up and have a conversation with you. And obviously, that's where you're going to be able to get to know us in in a real and authentic way. But by filling out that form, that allows us to reach out to you with more information about the church and also some additional care and resources. I have a few announcements for this morning. Um, First of all, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how we are a word-centered church how God speaks to us, he's revealed himself through his word, and how we are a word people. We're a people of, of the book, right? And so there's two different ways that we want to see our, our church strengthened this year at Kingsway uh, in this way. And so one of those is that there are several pastor-recommended books in the bookshop for this year. These are not just okay books. They're not good books. These are great books, okay? And these are, these are dealing with issues like anxiety and depression or evangelism or what's going on in culture today. And so if you're looking for a really good book on something like that, head over to the bookshop. You can loan a book or you can purchase a book, um, but that's one way that we want to encourage us this year. The second is that this year we're offering several um, Sunday classes for adults, We're going to start our marriage class this morning, um, but we're actually going to be postponing that by a week um, at a minimum. So God willing, starting next week, we'll have our our four-week series on marriage. That's going to be held in Spanish, um, led by our brother Mario. And then following that four-week series, we're going to have a series on evangelism uh, led by Caleb Collins. And so if you want to mark your calendars for that, that's going to be mid-February. Um, and that'll be another four-week series. So we'd love for you to be participating in one or both of these. In fact, a challenge for us um, this year could be, if you consider it, maybe you're not a reader that's going to read all eight books that were recommended. Maybe you're not going to be at every single adult Sunday class, but challenge yourself to do one of those, okay? Read one of the books or come to one of those classes. That would be an excellent way to grow and participate this year. A second announcement for today is that we are near to opening our, our first Sunday of the month for King's Kids. So down that hallway, um, every other week of the month, we have our classes, but we've been in need of additional support for the first Sunday of the month, and we are really, really close. We, in fact, need only two people to step up in order to make that possible to where King's Kids could, ha- could happen every single week. So... Here's what we need. We still have a need for one person to assist in the King's Kids administration desk and one person to assist um, in the nursery. And so both of those are on the first Sunday of the month. If you are able to serve in that way, you can talk to Karin. Her email is on the slide behind me. All right. And then finally, um, an exciting announcement. This last summer, we had a regional youth retreat, and it was amazing. I personally was not there. My, my sibling was getting married, but I talked to, you know, all these young people that went from our church and they were blessed, tremendously blessed. Um, they saw the grandeur of God, the dazzling nature of God, and they were able to build relationships with one another. 
and with other young people in our region. And so that is now going to be available coming up this June 8th through 10th. They just released the dates this week. So mark your calendars. The estimated cost is about $150 per person. So talk as a family. If you have uh, middle and high school students who would be interested in participating in this, and if you as a parent want to participate, we would love for you to attend. So June 8th through 10th, mark your calendars. And as a final reminder for this, uh, this week, um, typically we would have our Frontline Together night. That's where parents and young people come together for teaching and worship. Um, this week, we're actually going to have small groups. Um, admittedly, that's because my wife is due to have a baby any day now. And so we're going to switch up the schedule a little bit. So 7.30 small groups at the church. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and stand if you are able and respond to this call to worship the Lord. This comes out of Isaiah 64. And before I start, I want to just meditate on something with us. However you're coming into today, however you're coming into a new year, um, you might be in a season, perhaps a season of waiting, perhaps it's a long season, Maybe there's something in your life that you are waiting for the Lord to do something. And maybe you long for the Lord to do something. And that, and that longing is a good thing. Longing for the Lord to act is a good thing. And waiting on the Lord is also a good thing. So listen to what Isaiah says. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and to the nations, that they might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. So church, if you're in a season of waiting, that waiting on the Lord is a good thing. That longing for the Lord to act is a good thing. And that gives us reason to sing because there's no other God like our God. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Lord, we are profoundly grateful that you are a speaking God. Please help us, Father, to never take that privilege for granted. Guard us from evaluating what we hear this morning, asking Does this line up with my thoughts or my preferences or what I want to believe or what I would like to be true? Help us to approach your word with the humility of revelation receivers, with a spirit of dependence on you to make yourself known. Lord, we choose right now to posture ourselves as creatures asking for an open ear. 
for a humble heart. That you might implant your word deep in our souls. Help us to remember in all we hear this morning, Lord, that this is not a collection of spiritual recommendations or religious theories or the notions of men. But this is the very expression of the radiance of your eternal glory. Help us to listen that way. Help us to weigh your words that way. Though we come to a different mountain than Israel did at Sinai, we want to have the same fear of the living God beating in our hearts. Wherever that's not present right now, help Jesus. Wherever our minds are prone to wonder, help Jesus. Wherever we are more interested in hearing what somebody else needs to do or stop doing, help Jesus. Give us eyes for you. Amen. We, we tend to think of this world that we live in, I think, friends, in, in two categories. At least we're, we're really tempted to do this. So, so you have the, the material world where the story of human history goes down, right? That the world in which we are born, where we work, where we live, where we buy groceries, where we get married, where we raise children, you name it, the material world, the physical world. And then we have the, the spiritual world in contrast where we think God does his thing, so to speak, where, where he works, where he moves, where, where he's kind of busy with all the stuff that people talk about and Christians sing about in church on Sundays. Two worlds, both real, Many people would acknowledge, even non-Christians, our world, God's world. There is, however, a fatal flaw in that perspective. And if everything I said this far, you're thinking, yeah, that's right. Say it again, preacher. <laughs> Listen carefully, because there's a fatal flaw in that perspective. Here it is. that The God with whom we have to do is not doing his thing over here while we do our thing over here. That's the flaw. That's the lie. Why? Because God has acted, is acting, and will never stop acting in human history because our world is his world. <laughs> he created it, right? He upholds it. It is his world. He governs it. And, and he's unceasingly working in it in our world for his glory and your good. In other words, he is not just a God who exists. If that's the best you've got, when you think, who is God? Well, I don't know, I don't know much. 
I, I guess, I think he exists. Well, good. <laughs> Start there because he does. But friends, he's, he's immeasurably more. He's not just the God who exists. He's a God who intervenes. A God who acts. A God who engages. Think of it this way. As a, as a tree is known by its fruit, right? Or, or as a man is, is tested by his deeds, so too God is known by his actions. He, he hasn't left it up to us to decide if he's really there, or if he is really there, to develop a, a variety of theories and, and choose whichever perspective on the spiritual world we find the most persuasive. No, no, not at all. He, he shows us exactly what he's like, who he is, what he requires of us by doing what? By breaking into our world in a, in a way that exalts his supremacy, and demands your allegiance. Two really important things I want you to hear about God today. He is not passive, and he is not silent. He's not passive, he's not silent. Rather, main point of this whole text, the Lord exalts himself in revelation and redemption that we might know he alone is God and is supremely worthy of our devotion. He is not passive. He is not silent. And we need this chapter, friends, because our, our society, our world, our, our pluralistic culture is, is no less saturated with all kinds of false gods than the ancient Near East in Moses' day, or in Israel's day, right? Kevin was leading us in confessing some of that earlier this morning. We, we just call them respectable things, like self-care, or financial security, or, or professional success. And in the midst of that culture, that world, our world, we have a desperate spiritual need, and it is not complicated but it is terribly important. We need to remember that the Lord is God. There is no other. He's, he's not God in, in one category of the universe or one part of the universe. He, he's not God in, in some situations, but, but not others. He is God and God alone in all places, at all times, in all situations. As Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And the final, final words of, of Moses' sermon that we're looking at this morning in, in Deuteronomy 4 culminates in a declaration of the exclusive deity. That very point, the singular unity and the utter worthiness of God, all grounded in the way he broke into Israel's story. And through Israel, though the way he's broken into our story. 
And Moses begins this part of his sermon by by asking Israel to join him in a research project of sorts. And how many of you out there love the thought of a research project or a research paper? But, But imagine listening as Moses challenges you to join him in doing some research. In a little examination, in a little study, in a ancient Near East equivalent of a Google search. (laughs) Look at verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. (laughs) Moses isn't quiet when he's preaching that, right? There's passion in those words. Because the the, the two great things, we're going to look at this in two parts, okay? The the two great things that are a part of this great thing, there are two parts to that, that the Lord did for Israel, are the same two great things the Lord has done for us, brothers and sisters. Same two things, different moments in redemptive history, but categorically the same two things. Here they are. It's not complicated. One, he exalts himself in revelation. Two, he exalts himself in redemption. Point number one, first great thing. God exalts himself to revelation, verses 33 and 36. The the whole structure of this passage is is Moses is just taking loops, driving by through the same spiritual principle again and again. And every time he drives around that corner, he adds something a little bit different. He's embedding our soul, as it were. in something we really need to get. And the first is found in verse 33, where Yahweh takes the initiative to manifest his glory through the words that he spoke in a way that that completely set him apart from all the mute idols of Canaan. Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard? What in the world is Moses talking about? A a voice out of the midst of the fire? (laughs) Well, he's he's referring back to something that Israel experienced some 40 years earlier. If you're not familiar with the story, at at a place called Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, the the entire nation, here's the bottom line, entire nation, not just the random person having a dream, the entire nation, millions of people, heard audibly the voice of God. Exodus 19, 16 tells the story. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. You, you realize that's not CGI. That really happened. You, you saw his great fire, Moses reminds them in 
Verse 36. What's that? The the physical manifestation of his his consuming power, the the resplendent glory of his presence. You, You heard his words, he reminds them. What's that? God's words, his his divine self-disclosure through the perfectly suitable means of human language. It was a precious, precious gift, Israel. An unprecedented action. Something none of the nations around us have, have ever experienced or ever heard of or ever reported that someone else experienced it. Utterly unique. Israel, you you did not behold, remember, a wooden statue fashioned by human hands. Deuteronomy 4.12, there was only a voice. Just a voice. And hearing that voice, what was not the result of some kind of innate merit or, or innate spiritual sensitivity or perception or intuition on the part of Israel. No, it was an act of grace, friends. An act of grace and an expression of God's undeserved favor. And that in at least two senses, okay? First, it was an act of grace hearing the voice of God because first, we are naturally unable to recognize God's voice. For real. (laughs) Why? Because of the sin in our hearts. Because of the dark desire within all of us that that asserts our own authority against God instead of joyfully submitting to God. And that's not just a thing or a data point. That, That affects us. That impacts you. It destroys your ability to discern the truth about God. In other words, you're not intellectually objective friend when it comes to the things of God. We're pervasively and grievously biased. Our our insight is is skewed. Lies about God sound true. What's true about God feels like a lie. And that's the consequence of our inherited guilt and our moral corruption and an expression of God's righteous judgment. Do not think, in other words, that you have, any of us have, the ability to sit in here on a Sunday morning and objectively listen to the preaching of God's word. If God does not give you ears to hear, you will never hear. If if God does not give you a a heart to understand, you will never understand. And I don't say that to shame you or to put you in your place because it's my place as well. It it is all of our place apart from the mercy of God. We are naturally unable to recognize his voice, which means our need is Israel's need. What? What's that? God must enable us to hear his voice, right? Right? We, we have no independent ability. This is the point. To grasp who God is. Human beings don't have that. Or, or, or to recognize his voice from all the other voices out there. The spirit of the living God must open our eyes, open our ears to hear the glory of God's self-revelation in scripture. 
because we're naturally deaf and blind. I mean, it's, it's why the psalmist rejoices in Psalm 46. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for this. You have given me an open ear. He didn't, he didn't praise God for that because he was one of those people that was unfortunately born blind at age 20. You know, boom, I can hear. No, that's, that's a spiritual gift he's thanking God for. And, and the Lord was exceedingly kind. Exceedingly kind to let Israel hear his voice. And friend, God is exceedingly kind when he lets you hear the same. Whenever you read something in scripture and you just marvel at the goodness of God, has that ever happened to you? Whenever you're, you're listening to a sermon and, and you're freshly convicted of your need for a savior, you're, you're compelled to cry out, help Jesus. That's a gift from God. If, if you share a doubt or a fear with a friend, Christian friend, and, and the, the biblical encouragement they provide leaves you just a little bit more, more aware than when you, before you were talking to him, before you called him or before you texted him, that God is sovereign and loving and wise just a little bit more aware of that, you are a blessed man or woman indeed. Do not take for granted, Christian, the privilege of God revealing himself to you through words you can actually understand. <laughs> what, what kindness that is. What humility for, for, our, for our creator to, to freely and faithfully speak to his creatures, to speak to us in, in ways we can actually understand. Sinai was an act of grace because we're, we're not naturally able to hear God's voice. Here's the second reason it was an act of grace. It was an act of grace because when Israel heard God's voice, she didn't die. <laughs> did, did you see that one coming? What, what, look at verse 33. What, what's the climactic marvel? What's the, the greatest miracle that Moses has his eye on here at the end of the verse? It's not the fact that God spoke. You realize that? that? That's no surprise to Moses at all. Why? Because he knows the Lord of the universe is a personal, communicative God. So what's the miracle? What's the surprise? It's the fact that when you heard the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, guys, you lived. <laughs> you didn't die. You're here. You heard. You lived. You heard. You're still here. If that doesn't blow your mind, you do not know the living God. Why do I say that? Because God's voice is an expression of the weight of his glory. Psalm 29 verse 4, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. What's that mean? That, that it's, a, it's, it's a revelation of the, the matchless splendor of his nature. What, 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 does the, what is the collective testimony of scripture? Tell us to expect. Lead us to expect. 
when a holy God collides with sinful men? What does the word of God lead us to expect, tell us to anticipate? Well, what does an entire generation of Israelite corpses buried in the wilderness say? Or or what do Nadab and Abihu's charred bodies outside the holy place say? Or what does Isaiah's cry in the courtroom of Yahweh, woe is me, for I am lost, say? Or what is Peter falling at Jesus' feet and, and pleading, Lord, Would you just depart from me? Because I'm a sinful man, Lord. What what does all that say? All those examples, all that evidence, what is it? It says something, friend. Something we've got to see. That when holy God collides with sinful man, sinful man is undone and overwhelmed and eviscerated and destroyed. That's what happens to sinners when when God reveals his all-consuming majesty. And, And you realize this, that's exactly what he did at Mount Sinai. When he he spoke to them out of the fire. Remember this, okay? Because we can get this so wrong. God's, God's word, the words of his mouth, it's not just information about God. It's not like Wikipedia or a book you check out at the library or somebody else's doctoral thesis you read. It's not information about God. What what are the words that come out of God's mouth? They are the very self-expression, self-disclosure, manifestation, expression, revelation of the glory and nature and essence of God. It's self-revelation. It's not information merely. To, to, to hear his voice, this is the point, is to be confronted with, with the glory of him who is of purer eyes than to even look upon evil. And yet when God spoke to her out of the midst of the fire, that God, Israel, lived. She did. Why? Because God had a nice day that morning. No. No, that that was not an aberration. It wasn't a jackal and hide dealio. She lived because God's purpose in speaking that day was not to condemn her, but to save her. That the reason, look at verse 36, the reason God spoke to Israel is the same reason he speaks to you today through his word, friend. Verse 36, he let you hear his voice, that purpose, goal, aim, divine agenda, he might discipline you. How did God discipline Israel at Sinai? Because we generally avoid that word, because we don't like that word. (laughs) Well, he he gave her statutes and rules to follow. What? That she might experience the the blessing and life and joy of relationship with him, of of doing life God's way. 
So what does that tell us? That both, both then and now, discipline is, is training in the way of righteousness. Instruction in the way, training in the way. It, it's both corrective, don't do this, and formative, do this instead. And, and, and the entire law that God gave Israel, all, all, we're, all we've seen, all we're about to see in Deuteronomy, all of that also included provisions for how she could be forgiven and restored whenever she wandered away from that path of life and blessing, right? She needed the Lord's discipline. Friends, we need it no less than Israel. You need it no less than Israel. Why? I think I'm a pretty good, reasonable guy. Anyway, why do I need discipline? I'll tell you, needs this one. My kid needs discipline. Mm. We need discipline. You will never outgrow your need for the Lord's discipline. You'll never mature your way out of the house of God's instruction and your dependence on that instruction. The amount that is corrective versus the amount that is formative. It's constantly changing, but we never graduate out of that need. Why? Because we're creatures. And because wisdom in the things of God is never found by by looking within yourself or listening to yourself. Wisdom in the things of God is found by listening to what God says about himself. And I'm not talking about some kind of subjective spiritual impression of what God is saying. Well, I think God is saying, well, I thought God is saying, well, I like to think God is saying. No, no. Nor am I talking about some internal subjective sense of what God is saying. I'm talking about God's inerrant authoritative word, friend. What God himself has said, graciously given to us in the pages of scripture. Proverbs 6, verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. When you open the word of God, you should rejoice because this word is like Love to tell my boys this. It, it's like the blue lights on an airport runway telling the plane exactly where to go if everybody in that plane is going to live and not die. The, the, nobody, I've never heard one person who flies say, can they just get rid of all the dumb lights on the runway? I, I would prefer to kind of lay in diagonal today. It's like, no, 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 no. I want a pilot that goes right down the middle. <laughs> right? Why? Well, because if you're a flying traveler, you know the path those lights mark out for me is the path of life and blessing and safe arrival at home. That's what the word of God is. Marks the path of life. Gracious discipline. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear an increase in learning. If, if you want to be a wise man or woman, I want to ask you to raise your hand, but I imagine this room is filled with people, but not in an arrogant sense. You just, I want to be wise, Matthew. I don't want to be a fool. Well, there is one action you're going to have to become good at. And that's it. Let the wise, what? 
hear. You want to be wise? You're going to have to learn to hear. To hear the voice of God and increase in learning. That, that was the gift that God gave Israel. The, the gift of hearing his voice. Not to condemn her, but that she might be saved. Here's the second great thing God did. Exalts himself through revelation. Here's the second. God exalts himself through redemption. Verses 34 and 37 through 38. Remember Moses is kind of orbiting through this content. Look at verse 34. Here's the second utterly unique thing God did for Israel. Or has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Israel, he didn't just exalt himself by revealing himself to you. He exalted himself by redeeming you from 400 years of brutal slavery, in fact. Well, how did he do that? Through a divine act of war against Pharaoh and all the hosts of Egypt in the form of 10 plagues. So what did God do? He turned the Nile River into blood. He filled Egypt with frogs and gnats and flies. He killed all their livestock. He afflicted them with boils. He destroyed their crops with hail. What the hail left, swarms of locusts devoured. And then he filled their land with pitch darkness, a darkness to be felt. For 72 straight hours. And then finally, he killed all of their firstborn sons. You you realize that that was infinitely more than just an unfortunate series of events. (laughs) That was personal. God himself worked salvation for his people by exercising judgment on her enemies. That was personal. I'd say it this way. The the moral arc of the universe didn't cause the waters of the Red Sea to come crashing in on Pharaoh and all his hosts. God did that. God did that. Back to where we started, right? Because our world is his world. (laughs) Because he's a God who intervenes. He's a God who acts. It was the might of his hand, Moses says, the strength of his arm, that the so-called gods of Egypt were powerless before him. And verse 37, look there, tells us what compelled the Lord to do all of that, to, to declare divine war on the enemies of his people. Verse 37 It was because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. He he was fueled by holy love. And we need to linger there. 
Because I think sometimes even in the church, even after years of singing songs that have the word love and the word God in some sort of connected space, (laughs) that we can still think of God, the God with whom we have to do, as a, a dispassionate sovereign. What do I mean by that? Well, he's, he's there. He exists. Okay, maybe I'll grant you that he intervenes. Okay, I suppose I'm supposed to be comforted by the fact that he's working all things together to the perfection of his will. But I'm pretty sure he's basically unmoved by all the emotions that flood our hearts as creatures. Friend, that's not at all who God is. Not at all. The God with whom you have to do is deeply emotional. Do you believe that? Deeply emotional. Now, now there's a danger in me saying that because we live in a world that idolizes our emotions and feelings, right? I'm not talking about projecting our emotional realities back on the creator, recreating him in our image. We're created in his. But the fact that we have emotions is a not-so-subtle indicator that he too has emotions. They can be corrupted, but they're not categorically wrong. They're categorically glorious. And in the sovereign mystery of his will, a feeling emotional God set his holy affections, set his love upon Abraham and Isaac and Jacob compelled by nothing outside of himself to do so. If you want to ask me, well, why did God love them? All I can say, all scripture says is, because it delighted him to do so. And having set his affection on them, he intervened in their life to turn their hearts back to him. He he rescued Israel and his descendants from all kinds of trouble, trouble without, trouble within. He took the childless and gave them offspring. He took the homeless and gave them a land. He took the weak and the poor and the enslaved and carried them on eagle's wings. He did all of that stuff Israel could never have done for herself. Why? Because he loved Israel. Friend, please hear this. God loves you too. He loves you too. And if you hear me say that and you think, thanks for saying that, Pastor. I've always known and believed that. It's just good to feel the warm fuzzies again. That is not what I'm talking about. God. The subject of that sentence is the glorious one who when he collides with sinful man, remember, That's the God who loves you too. So much so, in fact, that 2,000 years after Egypt, he worked a far greater deliverance for you, my friend. A, A deliverance from slavery to sin and death. If you look at verse 37, the singular offspring in that verse points forward to more than God's sovereign choice of Israel. It points forward to Jesus, God's chosen son who, who embodied in his obedience everything Israel was supposed to be but failed to be. And it points forward to, to what else? 
God's chosen bride, the church, chosen in Christ, whom, whom the Father purposed from eternity past to redeem through the Son's life and death and resurrection. The, the gospel, in other words, isn't a hidden deliverance any more than the first Exodus was. It's a public word, or in the language of verse 31, a before-your-eyes kind of rescue. Galatians 3 verse 1 It was before your eyes, Paul says, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's he talking about? That through the public proclamation of the gospel, God does what? He confronts sinners like us with the glorious truth of his power to save in an immeasurably greater way than Israel ever knew in the first exodus from Egypt. To be a Christian is to be loved by the Father, chosen in the Son and safely brought home through the faith-producing, perseverance-enabling work of God the Spirit. Same story. But even more than the first exodus, that redemption is personal. Because in that redemption, in our redemption, God didn't send plagues. He gave us life by laying down his life. Which firstborn son died at Calvary? God's. He exalts his name in revelation. And he exalts his name in redemption. He did it for Israel. He's done it for us. And the word of revelation God gave Israel, no less than the acts of redemption he performed for Israel, marvelously revealed his glory. But listen, please hear this. The word God has granted us in Christ. Okay, that the good news of the word made flesh is immeasurably better. Hebrews 12 verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire. Darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the point? God spoke a word of revelation and redemption to Israel in the Exodus and at Sinai. And that same God has spoken in an immeasurably greater way through the word of Christ, through the word made flesh. And as God brought Israel to his place and to the land of her inheritance, or in the words of verse 38, so too he brings us in to his place. What's your place, Christian? Through faith in Christ, he brings you into the spiritual kingdom of his redemptive rule and into the family of God through baptism and church membership. And ultimately, he, he brings us home to heaven, to his place. 
But here's what we have to remember, okay? As we rejoice in the, the way God's exalted himself in revelation, he's exalted himself in redemption, he did that under the old covenant, he's doing that under the new covenant. Here's what we have to remember, okay? Main point of all of this, ultimately. Then and now, revelation and redemption have always had the same goal. They're not just things God has done to exalt himself. Well, that's cool. You exalt yourself through revelation. That's cool too. You exalt yourself through redemption. Yes, he does all those things, but he does them for a reason, friend. There's a a divine, a telos, an an agenda, a goal. God is after something. He's seeking something. He does, think of it this way. God doesn't need to convince himself of his own glory right? He is fully aware and has eternally been aware of just how glorious and magnificent he is. So why then has he acted in our world through revelation, through redemption? So that you could know it too. So that you could see it too. So that you could hear it too. And that in response, look at verse 35, you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So here's the point of all that. Point number three, we'll conclude with this. God is exclusively worthy of our devotion. That's the point. Verses 35 and 39 through 40. No other God has revealed himself to us, brothers and sisters, like our God has. No other God. What what, what other God has given an inerrant word that testifies of his glory? What, What other God has come to earth as a man to lay down his life for us? I mean, sure, I've taken comparative religions. Plenty of other religions offer purported pathways to the divine, but it's never the good news of God saving us. It's always a thousand variations on how can we save ourselves. That's all it is. The the utter uniqueness, the utter uniqueness of God's actions in revelation and redemption then and now point to something, to the utter uniqueness of his person. They shout that. They scream that. They put a flashlight on that. There's no one else like him. Not not because he's just the best God. Don't shop at Aldi, shop at Kroger, you know? No. Or, Or because he's a preferable God among an assortment of real God options. No, because he's the only God. The true God, the living God. Isaiah 46, 9 For I am God. It's like, Lord Jesus, could we please help us to remember that in all the situations we get into? Right. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Is is that not your greatest need in every moment of your life, my friend? To know who is God right now. 
Who's on the throne? Where, where, where can I look to make sense of the brokenness of life in this world? Where, where can I go to find meaning in the midst of futility and hope in the midst of sorrow and gladness instead of shame and freedom and instead of slavery? When your adult child calls you and says, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or when your boss brings you in and says, we're letting you go. Or when your spouse says, you know what? I don't love you anymore and I haven't for 20 years. Or when your best friend moves away or gets married again and it just feels like life is passing you by. What what, what do all those moments and a thousand more in our life, what do they all have in common? Every one of them. It's a moment, it's a today where we need to know and lay to heart verse 39. Fix your eyes on that verse. It's a moment, it's a today that the Lord is God. In heaven above, and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. You, you realize, Christian, to be a Christian is to believe that, by the way. You, you realize we don't believe that because we like that thought. Or because it's just an easier way to navigate a, a dog-eat-dog universe. We believe that because that is what God has shown us about himself. Think about that. His his acts of revelation culminating in Christ, his acts testify of his supremacy. His actions of redemption culminating in Christ testify of his supremacy. He doesn't ask you to believe on a whim that he is God and there is no other. Through his actions in human history, he shows us that he is God and there is no other. Notice the call to trust God alone in verse 39 is grounded and rooted in God's redemptive revelatory actions in verse 37. What's the logic? Because he loved and chose and brought you out of Egypt, know therefore today that the Lord is God. But even as I say that, I want you to be really careful. Be very careful, friend. Very careful. Because the point of reviewing Israel's spiritual experience is not to encourage her or us to trust in our subjective spiritual experience. Or, hear me, to reduce the foundation of our faith to the finite dimensions of our personal experience. Or as if what we have seen or what we have heard or what we have experienced is the final arbiter of truth. No. No. The point of remembering God's actions in history is that we might trust what God has objectively shown us about himself through the way he has acted in history. You you don't want your faith in God, we throw that word around like it's a hot potato, okay? You don't want your faith in God to, to ebb and flow on the tide of your latest spiritual experience. Or, or your fluctuating emotions, okay? That's not faith in God at all. That's faith in you. Your experience of God. 
And trusting your personal experience of revelation or your personal experience of redemption is altogether different than trusting the God who makes himself known through the way he reveals and through the way he redeems. Don't confuse those, friend. Don't don't place your faith in what your personal experiences say about God, but what God himself has decisively and objectively and eternally and reliably and truthfully said about himself. Do you see the difference? And if your faith, genuine faith, monotheistic faith, is in God himself, for who God himself has revealed himself to be, in Christ, how will you know? How will you know, to use my youngest son's favorite word, Your faith is legit. (laughs) But is that a legit mailman? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) well, it's like, 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 oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Proper English people. Mm. How will you know if your faith in God is legit? That it's not in your personal experience of redemption, your personal experience of revelation. It's in what God himself has said about himself through redemption and through revelation. The difference, right? How we know you're over here, not over here. Especially if you've grown up in the church. Well, here's the answer. It's found in verse 40. You'll know through the way you obey his commands. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. The divinely intended effect of Moses' words is not to produce a people who say, aha, check it out. Look at us. We know the truth about God. We're grounded in the gospel, unlike all those social justice warriors out there. Look at our doctrine. Look at my nuanced biblical theology. The Reformation fathers would be proud. Thank you, God, that I'm not like Other men who just believe anything they read in a Christian bookstore. Gosh. Friends, the Reformation fathers would not be proud of us at all if all you have is a correct statement of faith. James 2.19 You believe that God is one? There is no other. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The whole reason God exalts his name in revelation and redemption is to show us that he is exclusively worthy of our devotion. 
Okay? Not, not in the abstract, but through faithful obedience of his commands. That is the true test of your theology. That's the true test of our orthodoxy. That, that's what sets a genuine Christian apart from a demon. It's not about what we know. It's about whether the pattern of our life confesses or denies that the Lord is God and there is no other. Think of it this way. Here's why this is so relevant. When obeying God's word and all it says feels incredibly hard to you. And you find yourself thinking, surely, I mean, surely there must be another way to find life on this planet. (laughs) This doesn't feel life-giving at all. Blue lights, yep, doesn't feel life-giving at all. What do you need to remember, friend? You need to remember that the Lord is God and there is no other. You, You cannot avoid him. That's the point. You can ignore him. You can pretend he's not there. You can act like you were God and he is not. But in the end, you can't create as a mere creature a categorically different spiritual reality. You're a creature. You're fashioned by God in his image and for his glory. That means you are accountable to him and his purposes for your life will prevail, whether that is through judgment or through salvation. May it be the latter, friend. For the Lord loves you. He died for you. He longs for you to know him. He longs for you to enjoy him. Not not just because he's right or because he's true, but because he's exceedingly good. And mind you, when Moses encourages Israel in verse 40 to keep God's commands, that it may go well with you. He is not for one hot second talking about a works-based salvation. Scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. Oh, I get it, Matthew. No, no, he, what is Moses saying? Something that is still timelessly true today. He's saying the path of obedience to God's commands, starting with what? God's command to repent of our sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ. The path of obedience to God's commands is always a path of blessing and the only path of blessing. Always and only. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. The, the Lord is exclusively worthy of our devotion. That's why he exalts himself in revelation, exalts himself in redemption. But what if we fail? What if we fail to live that way? What if you fail this afternoon? What if you find yourself living as if someone or something else is is more worthy of devotion than him? I mean, maybe in your head, you know they're not more worthy than God, but but you just like running after them anyway, living for them anyway, because you don't like what God requires. Or living for this instead of for him lets you, at least so you feel, hold on to some measly shred of self-autonomy and authority. Well, that's when the passage that ends this section in Deuteronomy, right before Moses starts, the whole next section on the Ten Commandments, is so helpful. 
And in your Bible, it might be called Cities of Refuge. And if you don't know what that's about, basically, when the Lord brought Israel into the promised land, the Mosaic Law established something called Cities of Refuge throughout all the territory of Israel. And it was a place that anyone who unintentionally killed a fellow Israelite could flee for protection from an avenging relative. It was a place they could expect a fair trial, preserve their life. It was a place where an Israelite who needed mercy could find mercy. Friends, what a picture that is of the refuge we have in Jesus when we fail. Not just for unintentional sins, mind you, but for high-handed sins. We knowingly commit when, when despite what we know about God's utter exclusive worthiness through revelation and redemption, when despite all that, we still look to other people and other things to give us life instead of him. When you find yourself doing that, there is still a place you can flee, friend. It's the only place you can safely flee. It's it's the cross of Christ where God died so you could find mercy. And as the Mosaic law ensured cities of refuge were always close at hand, so too the cleansing fountain of Christ's blood always lies close at hand, ready and waiting. Whenever you experience conviction of sin, let us then with confidence, Hebrews 4.16 says, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Praise the Lord for that refuge. We need to see God exalting his name in Revelation. We need to remember God exalting his name in redemption. He did it for Israel. He's done it in Christ. Why? That we might know the Lord is God. There is no other. And devote our life to making much of him. Friend, do that this week. And when you forget all that and fail, don't run from God. Run to him. Why? Why would I do a crazy thing like that, Matthew? Because there is no other. And every sinner that humbly runs to him always finds mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, there is absolutely nowhere anyone in all of history, past, present, or future, like you. You are utterly unique. You are utterly glorious. You are the only God and there is no other. Thank you for showing us that's true by revealing yourself, by redeeming us. Give us hearts that can say with Isaiah, the Lord is most certainly God. There is no other. Work that as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.